Hello and welcome to YHTV's nominated show, The Magical Medical Tour. This is episode 96. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm Christina Suzuma, and with me is our wonderful medical guide, Dr. Glenn Woolman. Hello, Dr. Woolman. Hello, Christina. (laughs) (laughs) This is a fun show, isn't it? (laughs) It will be. We're testing something new. Where I'm on location at the same time. (laughs) Yeah, we're both away from uh, Segovia. Yes. Bye, Segovia. Hi, Segovia. (laughs) (laughs) Can he handle it? I don't know if he can. (laughs) We'll see. We'll We'll keep keep checking in throughout the show today to see if he's handling it. That sounds super great. (laughs) (laughs) So, are we doing? Oh, sorry. Oh, no, that's all right. (laughs) Are we doing? Are we doing one of our little specials with you today? Yes, we're going inside the doctor's bag for another public service episode. (laughs) Sounds great. Always love them. Yeah, this is my opportunity to do sometimes current events and sometimes just to uh, give people more and more advice on how to take care of themselves. So that's my plan for today. But before that, I want to say... Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Magical Medical Tour. I'm Dr. Glenn Wallman, and I will be your medical guide today, along with Christina, as we travel through another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy, searching for optimal health. I hope you're all finding it by now. By 96 episodes, you should have some version of optimal health by now. What do you think, Christina? (laughs) I sure hope so. (laughs) Yeah. Otherwise, what's the point here? I agree. I agree. You know, it's, but you know, it's really fascinating though, because there's so much. And I even find myself having to go back to previous episodes to go, what was that? What was it that we talked about that, that we need to implement? (laughs) Right. Right. Well, it's good. You know, that's one of the uh, ideas and pillars of our show is to have enough episodes where people can use this as a 21st century uh, visual virtual guidebook. Mm -hmm. Uh, to go back and learn things. And as we keep adding episodes, there'll be more and more things to learn. And of course, in medicine, one of the great things about medicine is it's a constant frontier where we're always uh, pushing the envelope and learning new things and changing old theories and ideas for new things. And so keeping up is uh, very important. That's why it's important that everyone watches every week and continues to watch it throughout the week. Don't you agree? Oh, absolutely. And if you can't watch it, just listen. (laughs) Just listen to it. Right. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. So we're going inside the doctor's bag today. And um, I want to talk about uh, two major topics. One is uh, a current topic that's happening in California right now and uh, parts of Canada where there's uh, a measles outbreak. So I thought I would talk about that. Um, and then the second part uh, will be about uh, what to do when and if you get into an accident. And I'm not necessarily talking about a big accident, sometimes small little accidents that we need to figure out the right <coughs> things to do. Of course, most people probably know certain things, but I just want to put it from my perspective. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's great. Yeah, so Especially we'll... for us parents, you know. <laughs> We're running into accidents all the time. Yeah, I think, uh, well, yep, that's part of life. Uh, That's why I always talk about preparatory medicine along with uh, preventive medicine. We have to prepare for accidents and injuries and illness, things like that. So let's start with uh, this measles outbreak that's going on both in uh, California right now specifically and mainly Southern California, although it's happening uh, around different parts of California and also uh, part of uh, British British Columbia uh, Mm -hmm. is having a little outbreak. So I thought it would be interesting to discuss that with people. And I want to start by giving a definition of epidemiology. And epidemiology is a special branch of medicine And this branch of medicine deals with the incidence, the distribution, and the possible control of disease and other factors relating to health. So when you hear about things like the CDC 
uh, talks about an epidemic in this country or in that country or a possible flu season. It's the epidemiologists that are out there looking and figuring out all the numbers and how to track a disease or a, or a problem. We don't just talk about disease anymore. There are many things that we talk about uh, in epidemiology. Uh, so with that in mind, there are a few words that I think would be a good idea to learn. One is the first word is called endemic. E N as in Nancy, D E M as in mother, I C. And this refers to a constant presence or a usual prevalence of some kind of disease. So, you know, people may, there may be endemic flus or endemic uh, diseases that are basic, but small levels in, in, a, in an area, local area or a country or something like that. Uh, we always say that, for example, malaria might be endemic in certain parts of Africa it means it's always there, but uh, it's at a low level. Then we talk about epidemic, which refers to a basic increase and sudden, often it's sudden, number of cases of a disease above what is normally experienced in that population or area. And sometimes we use the word outbreak, uh, just like an epidemic, but usually an outbreak we talk about when it's localized to a certain geographic area, but you can sometimes use them intermittently. For me, an outbreak is a little less than epidemic. And then there's pandemic, which is something that is uh, prevalent around a whole country or the world. So uh, when I mentioned earlier, you know, sometimes we can get the those uh, the influenza virus, which we've spoken about in other shows, um, and other viruses. We talk about viruses in episode sixty-five. We talked about going viral, and in our first episode, I think with Stephen Jose, we talked about viruses with predators and with uh, Mary Louise Scully. We talked about uh, viruses that you can get when you're traveling, but. Sometimes we also talk about other things with pandemic. For instance, now diabetes and obesity, childhood obesity, we start referring to in terms of uh, epidemics and pandemics. Mm. And it's not just about a, a virus or a disease anymore like that, but there are many things. So I want to talk about measles for a little while. And I'd like to give a little bit of a medical history about measles. Uh, sometimes it's fun to have just a little extra knowledge. We always usually just focus on the um, disease itself, but it's fun mm -hmm. from a historical point of view. Uh, we have written evidence from a ninth century uh, Middle Eastern physician who described what appears to be the difference between measles and smallpox. So that was about the first evidence that we had that it existed back then. And then wow. a yeah, back in the ninth century. That's pretty wow, cool. It's amazing. Yeah. In uh in the seven in seventeen fifty-seven, a Scottish physician named Francis Holm, I'm hope hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh discovered uh that the cause of measles was by an infectious agent and it was in the blood. And then in nineteen fifty-four, the virus that actually causes the measles was isolated in Boston, Massachusetts, by two people, uh, John Enders and Thomas Peebles. And uh, so, and now we have today, we know a lot more about measles. And just to let people know, we've heard of, I think, two different types of measles. We've, we've heard of measles, and then maybe you've heard of the word German measles. Have you ever heard that before? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, we used to hear that a lot growing up here in Canada. Yeah. Um, so there, there are actually two different virus, viruses. They're a little bit similar, but the, the measles that we're having the outbreak with is called, it's a rubiola virus. Hmm. And the German measles is a rubella virus. And you've heard the word rubella. Most parents have heard that word when they have to hear about vaccinations for their kids, where they have that vaccination, the MMR vaccinations, which is measles, mumps, and rubella. So they mm -hmm, call the, mm -hmm. the measles that they talk about is the rubiola virus, and that's the breakout that's going on today. 
The measles vaccine was developed in 1963, and the MMR vaccine was developed in 1971. So, you know, you hear those terms, 71, sounds like it's close, but it's actually about 40 years ago. And uh, that, that becomes interesting for me to think that time moves on that quickly. Before these vaccines, um, there used to be in the United States around 500,000 cases of measles per year. And out of those 500,000, there were sometimes up to 500 deaths from measles. Uh, there were complications uh, in that time. 50,000 people essentially were hospitalized. Around 7,000 people would have some kind of a seizure. About 1,000 people suffered permanent brain damage, uh, including deafness, sometimes blindness. And, uh, but that's, that's going down now since the advent of the vaccines. We've only had about 108 confirmed cases of measles in the United States so far this year in 2014, although because of this outbreak, we've had about somewhere close to 60 cases in California uh, right now. But mm. we need to understand that measles is also very prevalent in other countries, the Philippines, Turkey, Vietnam, Italy, Germany, the Netherlands, Africa lots of other parts of Europe. Uh, so these outbreaks happen all over the world. And we take it for granted here because of the vaccinations, we, we've taken care of most of the cases of measles, but because of travel now and uh, people traveling from here and catching something there or people coming from other places and bringing it here, there's more of a prevalence again. And what we're finding is that the prevalence starts and usually the majority of people that, that end up getting these measles in the, in the outbreaks here after it's caught by or transmitted by someone else, um, it's usually people that have uh, not been vaccinated, either completely vaccinated or have chosen not to be vaccinated. So uh, what do we need to know? The first thing I think to talk about is what's the cause. And we know that it's a virus. I talked about that already. It's that rubiola virus. And it's usually considered a respiratory disease. And it's also a human disease. They haven't found it really in any animals. So it normally starts out and is transmitted and spread through an upper respiratory cough or sneeze or something on the mouth. And this virus, if can live outside of the body for about two hours or so, you know, the, and that's variable. So in mm -hmm. other words, if somebody uh, goes into a bathroom, coughs into a towel, and then an hour later you go in and use that same towel, and that virus is on the towel, and you have not been vaccinated, there's a good possibility you're going to get uh, the measles. Mm. Uh, I do want to mention, before we go forward, uh, that rubella virus that we talked about, which is the German measles. It's much mm -hmm. more mild. It's only about a three-day measles, so it's not too bad. So oh, we know how I had always thought it was opposite way around. No, the rubella virus, the German measles, is uh, uh, much less uh, virulent mm. and, and doesn't the cause The symptoms are the same? Uh, they're about the same. You don't get as high a fever. Uh, and I'm going to go over the symptoms in a couple of seconds. Everything is much more mild, and it doesn't last quite as long. Usually, they also call them, instead of the German measles, sometimes they call them the three-day measles. Hmm. So, And that's about how long it lasts. Um, so it's, it's important to know how it spreads. It's spread through contact and coughing and air droplets. And it usually, the virus settles in the cells, you know, we always talk about cells, it settles in the th back of the throat in those cells in the nasopharyngeal area and in the upper respiratory part of the body, the lungs, it can get into the lungs. And so a person can be exposed and then they're, they can go for about four, somewhere between four and 10 days, even up to two or three weeks but usually it's between four to 10 days, depending on the virulence or the strength of the virus, before they start uh, getting symptoms of it. And the first symptom is usually 
uh, a high fever, not feeling well. And the fever can go actually up to a, around 105, especially in kids. Uh, and then you start feeling malaise. Then the next things that happen are a runny nose, a cough. And if someone is wise enough to look inside the mouth on the inside of the cheeks of a child or an adult, you'll see these white spots that occur. They're called coplic. starts mm. with a K, coplic spots, and not everybody always sees them. And then after b- about four to five days with the fever, you start to develop this rash, which is itchy and scaling and a little red, sometimes flat, but it can have a little raised part in it. Usually starts around the back of the head, the hairline behind the ears. That's where we always used to look for it first. Then it went to the face. Then it would eventually make its way to the body, um, down to the hands and feet, and last for up to four to five days. Sometimes it could be up to a week. Now, the important things to realize is that when is a person contagious? Mm. Uh, And that's the thing that we need to talk about because the whole idea of this is how it spreads and how it's transmitted. And then it becomes, it goes from one person to uh, an outbreak and then an epidemic. Uh, And you can be uh, contagious from the moment you get exposed. Uh, Within about the first four days, even before the appearance of the rash, you are contagious. So uh, even a day or two before you start getting the fever, you're contagious. So the fever, high fever, runny eyes, pink eyes, the eyes can actually get red and inflamed and infected. And this is one of the uh, side effects that could happen or complications, which we worry about. Uh, Then the rash happens and we go from there. And eventually uh, the rash goes away, everything goes away. And if you didn't have complications from this, and you were not a person who was immunized or vaccinated, at that point, you will probably have an immunity for the rest of your life to measles, unless, of course, the measles virus changes. It's highly contagious. That's, that's one of the important things to mm-hmm. know. And when we start talking about the complications, that, that's what makes it uh, most serious, the, the complications that you can have. Uh, so the complications, aside from just the fever and feeling uh, tired, you can get bloated, a little bit nauseated, you get the runny nose, the runny eyes, but you can develop what we call complications are ear infections, things like pneumonia, uh, a lung infection, and encephalitis, which is a inflammation of the brain, and it's a swelling of the brain. And about one or two percent out of a thousand people that get a serious complication can die from it. So it's actually, it's not just a, a cold. It, it can actually cause death in people. And the death usually comes from a brain problem or a severe infection. And most of the time it's because a person is malnourished or their nutrition isn't good. So it's very important, uh, you know, if a child, if a family decides not to vaccinate their child or to be vaccinated themselves, then it's very important to keep up good nutrition, uh, exercise, and, and get plenty of sleep and rest and fluids, and try and stay as far away from anyone that may potentially have the measles as you can. Of course, it's almost impossible, but that's the important thing to know. Um, the measles virus still kills close to 170,000 people around the world each year. Wow. Yeah. It's, you know, we think of it here in this country. That's our exposure to how medicine is and how health is. But there are many places around the world where nutrition isn't good. Uh, there aren't mm. clinics. There aren't vaccines. Um, and people, once that virus sets in and becomes endemic, it can. Uh, it can wreak havoc. It's also mm. very important for pregnant women to avoid uh, anyone with the measles if you can. So uh, we talked about 
uh, how it goes about and what it's caused by and some of the complications and things like that. Everybody is at risk if you're unvaccinated. Mainly, again, usually we see with most viruses, it's very young children and uh, older adults. Uh, also, as I said, pregnant women. So, as a, for example, as a parent who mm-hmm. might have a child that uh, contracts the measles. Right. Uh, how, and it's so contagious. <laughs> right. Um, and if we haven't had it uh, in our childhood, which means that we haven't built an immunity or we haven't been vaccinated, right. uh, what, what is the best way <laughs> to uh, care for that child? Good question. So the treatment, uh, first of all, as I said before any treatment, is the preparatory medicine by making sure the child has nutrition and is basic, basically healthy. The second part is, and here's the real interesting thing, other than uh, the vaccination, there's no specific antiviral treatment. Uh, So there is no treatment. But there are some things that can be done. If somebody, if you're thinking right now, say, for example, you're in a place where there might be an outbreak and you have your child, and neither you nor your child have ever been vaccinated for measles. So the idea is to first stay away. If for some reason somebody comes over to visit, uh, and a day later you hear that that child has come down with the measles, what are the things that you can do? Well, the first thing is to, again, make sure the child is hydrated and is quiet and resting. And stays away from everyone else. They need to be isolated. Do not bring them to a clinic. Do not bring them to a hospital. Do not bring them to an emergency department. Best thing to do is either call your private doctor or call uh, a health advisory uh, team, the the CDC or something, wherever you are, there should be uh, a way to find a hotline. And you can talk to someone. They may want to, for the purposes of epidemiology uh, to actually diagnosis. So they may want you to go to a lab where blood tests would be drawn and throat swabs or nasal swabs would be taken for the actual documentation to prove that it is the measles. But don't go out once you think the possibility exists. Now, there are a few things that you can do. We did talk about hydration and and making sure that that is very important because some of the things that can happen are vomiting and diarrhea. And if you lose your electrolytes, then you will uh, certainly go into major complications. So hydration is very important. But if a, if a family decides that their child has been exposed and that they know that they've never had vaccination and that once their child gets it, they're probably going to get it also, you can actually uh, get the vaccine if you choose to do that. Uh, hmm. the, original, the original vaccine uh, is supposed to be given sometime after six months, usually around a year. Most parents know this better than I do. And then originally when it came out, it was one vaccine, but they found that some people were still getting at the immunization qualities within the first vaccine uh, weren't strong enough. So they now recommend a booster Uh, usually somewhere between four and six years of age when a child is just about to go to school. I know when I was growing up, we didn't have the vaccine. So when somebody got the measles, all of the parents sent their kids over to that house to get the measles so that uh, it would essentially give immunization later on. But um, if a child does get exposed or if an adult does get exposed, you can actually administer uh, the MMR, which is measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine within 72 hours after exposure. And if it's been after six days of exposure and starting to get symptoms, there's another vaccine, an immune globulin uh, vaccine that can be given. And these won't necessarily prevent it, but they will most likely make it a milder case. And uh, less chance for uh, complications. Every once in a while, antibiotics are necessary 
you know, if you get a pneumonia or you get a, uh, a different type of an infection. Uh, so antibiotics may be necessary for secondary bacterial infection. But remember, those of you that have listened to our shows before, antibiotics do not work on viruses, and this is a virus. So if you have antibiotics lying around your house uh, from a prior episode of an infection where you didn't take the appropriate amount, uh, don't take the <laughs> antibiotics. <laughs> That's important. Uh, and one other thing that to talk about with that is, especially we see this in other countries, underdeveloped countries, where it's suggested that a child that comes down with this or an adult that comes down with this get uh, vitamin A supplements, at least two doses, 24 hours apart. This has the ability to prevent uh, eye problems and even uh, potentially preventing blindness. And that's uh, very important. Mm. So it's very dangerous disease. Uh, it's highly contagious and it's very rare, but it can be fatal. Mm. And um, I think that uh, that would be all that I want to say about this right now, unless you have some things that you want to talk about and we can go over that a little bit. I, I think I'm coming back. I don't know where to, to, to stay up here in Canada or go back down to the... <laughs> Well, now this, Southern California. This, well, let's let's play a little game for a moment here. Let's say that um, let's hypothetically say that you've never been vaccinated, nor has your child, and we know there's an epidemic or a breakout up there. And let's say you get exposed, and you know that you've been exposed to it. The next process would be: Are you going to get on a plane? and choose to expose everyone else on that plane, depending on where they go, they may go, you know, from one place to another and then take another plane and then there's more mm -hmm. exposure. Or to be part of at least the human herd immunization concept. Most of the time when we talk about vaccinations, the more people that get vaccinated, the less opportunity there is for something like measles as a virus to be transmitted to other people. I think I've said this already, but most of the people that get the uh, measles are usually under-vaccinated or unvaccinated. Mm -hmm. So the more people that get vaccinated, uh, we become part of a herd and we make the decision to say, we don't want anyone else in the herd to get sick, so we're going to be part of that. So if you choose not to be vaccinated, then you still have some herd mentality that needs to be thought about. And if you get exposed, then the decision should be not to get on the plane. And that should be for almost up to three weeks. Mm, wow. Yeah. And if you do, one of the other things to do, for, for a ch especially for a child, but also for an adult, which I hadn't mentioned, is because we talked about how it's transmitted through air droplets with a cough or voice or a sneeze or something, put a mask on the child or put a mask on yourself if you're out in public. Um, and if you don't have a mask, if you can't get a surgical mask, and if you can't get even a more appropriate mask, uh, which the CDC and public health uh, recommend for more specific types of uh, respiratory problems, then at least put a blanket or a, a handkerchief or something over the child, especially when they're around other children. Mm -hmm. So that's the first thing. So I would say, you know, that if somebody does come down with it, the most important thing, aside from making sure that they remain healthy, is to main, make sure that other people remain healthy by not exposing them and transmitting the disease to more people with more of an outbreak. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, makes sense. Yeah. Okay, so I, I'll see you all in three weeks. <laughs> I just keep doing the shows from here. It's working. <laughs> ah. <laughs> That's very good. Yeah, I didn't... I, I wasn't sure if you wanted to mention that you were in Canada, but uh, <laughs> basically it seems like you're trying to go to all the places where measles occur. <laughs> you're in California. Been there, done that already. Yeah, had the measles. Oh, I think there's some in uh, part of Africa now. I think I'll go there next. Yeah. Oh, okay. And yeah. I'll just report back on the next magical medical tour. <laughs> yeah, or you can come down. That'd be with the a definite tour. <laughs> yeah, but no, that's true. And you can you can uh, try and find some other 
really cool viruses and bacteria and parasites, and we could really make this a tour. Yeah. <laughs> Complete diagnosis online. I uh, love it. This is Christina Susama coming from New Guinea with uh, Kuru. <laughs> Kuru is an interesting disease uh, that's, um, that's transmitted by cannibalism. And it's usually a, it's found in the brains of people. And usually it's women because the women are the ones that practice the cannibalism more. It's, uh, but we won't talk about Kuru now. We'll, we'll stay with measles right now. Ooh. So we, <laughs> that was just a tease for another show. I love it. Yeah, coming <laughs> events, future attractions. So uh, what do you think right now? What's your thoughts on this, and what do you want to know that I haven't talked about yet? Well, I think you've covered it quite extensively, actually. And, and uh, I mean, it definitely was a, um, a concern for me uh, because of the breakouts here up in Canada, as well as in Southern California, which is exactly where we live. Um, uh, they were saying that the numbers of the breakouts has been the highest uh, since uh, for a very long time. And of course, as most of uh, our audience may know, if they've been following the show, you know, my child is not immunized. So, you know, we uh, boosted all his immune supplements and, <laughs> right. you know, between the acidophilus and all the viral attack uh, um, um, uh, drops and things like that. So it's been it's been very interesting um, because they've supposedly they have it all, you know, confined now here in in British Columbia that's what they think that's what they say so that's really good to hear um and uh we haven't heard of any of the outbreaks anywhere that we are right now so that's also very helpful <laughs> good you're using the epidemiological terms thank you i, I am <laughs> <laughs> you used outbreak uh, oh i did okay <laughs> Uh, memory loss is one of the first signs. <laughs> that, yeah, yeah. I, I think if anyone's going to get it's me. <laughs> you know, at some point, I think uh, it's going to be important. I, we've we've skirted around the issue for for many episodes, uh, talking about vaccinations. But it might be interesting to have a panel show with the the pluses and the minuses uh, about the vaccines. You know. Uh, the World Health Organization is trying to eradicate measles, and that requires getting vaccinations around the world, double doses of the vaccinations. And I think they've given over 2 billion vaccinations, you know, up till now, and maybe more. Uh, many of the people worry about the complications of the vaccinations, and I think that's most of the reasons that people choose not to do that. Was that your choice because of worrying about complications or did you have a different reason? Um, uh, that was, a, I have to say, a percentage of it, but it wasn't the highest percentage. Mm -hmm. um, I, I also believe that, you know, the, we, you know, our bodies are, can tolerate a lot. Uh, um, throughout the years, if as uh, you know, what I loved that you said was people who choose to not immunize, um, the, the they need to make sure that they are uh, keeping their child healthy, mm -hmm. you know, physically healthy, um, you know, healthy nutrition, uh, and of course, we usually need the added supplements, um, etc. You know, good vitamins, uh, uh, like for example. When we see the average child at school, they're usually lethargic when they come in. Um, they have very high you know, sugar diets, high fat diets, whereas we live very clean. Um, and I've had so many of the teachers just say, we don't know how you do it, but your child has such uh, high energy in the class. Mm -hmm. And it's and and, I, and they look at their his lunch and they're sort of surprised with his lunch. It's you know like things like hummus and pita bread, <laughs> mm. lots of fruit. You know his yogurts. So it's it's, it's simple. It's simple. It's clean. Um, and uh, you know not the cakes and the candies and the chocolates and things like that that the other kids have or the chips and the Cheetos. You know. Um, so, so I do believe it, you, when, when a parent, uh, makes a choice to not immunize a child, 
it, you're taking on a whole different responsibility. And that responsibility is to keep them as healthy as you can and uh, as, as physically fit as you can. And uh, it all goes together. You know, your six points, Glenn, you know, sleeping well, you know, the, 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 the things that you believe in and right. spiritually strong and the belief system, you know, whereas when people have a cold, you know, we don't want to give it to your child. I said, I don't believe he's going to get it. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's simple. You know, I don't believe he's going to get it. You know, he right. washes hands, washes face, you know, essential oils. It, it, it's it's a, a number of things. And it's a lot more work, so to say. It's yes, a lot it more work when we're doing that. So it, it's a choice. It's a responsibility. Yeah, it is. And there's there's a few other parts of that responsibility, too. And you always have options. One of the things that I think is important to talk about is if you choose to have a child that's not vaccinated, it's very important to have that child, once they are capable of grasping it, to actually understand that they have not been vaccinated and and how diseases get transmitted. So if they see another child coughing in the playground, it's important for them to know that that cough might be an infectious cough and that they have to be aware of that. And most parents, I'm not sure, actually have that discussion with their kids, the awareness Mm. of illnesses being transmitted and what we've chosen for you as a child. And therefore, you are more susceptible in certain ways. So you have to do even more things uh, than other kids might do. Right, right. Yeah. And then the other, the other part of that is to make decisions uh, depending on if you're a traveler and you're going to take your child or yourself to another country where there are uh, other diseases that we're not quite used to, like, for example, malaria or typhoid fever, uh, where you always have opportunities to um, consider talking with a travel consultant like we did with Mary Louise Scully uh, mm-hmm. when and deciding whether or not, you know, I'm going to I'm going to be working. I've decided to go to India and bring my child because I know there's a measles epidemic right now and we want to work in some clinics there helping all the children. And you're going to go there. So you always have the opportunity then to get vaccinated. So even if you didn't get vaccinated as a child, you still have an opportunity. Mm-hmm. 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 Which, which when it comes to that time that that, that sort of travel or or a situation comes up, then yes, it's, it is a whole, that, that, that's a whole nother level of making a choice. <laughs> that's, that's right. And we want to go to the jungles of Thailand. Yes. So we're yes, all going exactly. to have the malaria shots of the pills or whatever that is. Right. You know? Exactly. It's important. I think anyway, it's yes. just good to know that those are the options. So we're still inside the doctor's bag and we're going to move away from viruses. Uh, Unless there I, is, I feel like you should have a bag, and you should be throwing things out of your bag. <laughs> <laughs> I do have a bag. <laughs> I take it on my house calls with me. Uh, maybe I have to define house calls since many people haven't heard of them in in this uh, generation. In this but, generation. Now you can Skype now. <laughs> yeah, uh, but some of us still do make house calls. Oh, that's great. Anyway. Part two, I decided that, uh, you know, I see a lot of people that get injured and uh, in many parts of a day, and some of them are minor injuries, but people don't always know what to do. So I decided to take a little time on this show and talk uh, about what to do when you get hurt in an accident. Uh, And I'm only going to focus on moments to hours. So this Mm. isn't going to be how to go through uh, a month with a pain or a a year or something like that. This is in that moment where you just took a fall and you're lying on the ground. uh, And what do you do? Well, the the first thing that I always say is, again, we go back to preparatory medicine. Be in the best health you can be. Make sure you sleep well, your nutrition is good, your exercise is good. And exercise becomes important, especially with accidents and injuries, because if your bones and muscles and tendons and ligaments are 
in the best of condition, then you may not get hurt as badly. And if you do get hurt badly, you did go into it in the best of condition, but you also mm. may heal better. So that's where I wanted to go today. And part of this is to turn everyone into an emergency medicine physician for the moment, either for, <laughs> your, <laughs> either for yourself or for uh, a family member or a friend, or you just happen to be on the street and see something going on. So the, the process here uh, is you get hurt. You take a fall, you twist an ankle, you do something. The first purpose is to live. That's that's why we're here, and that's what we want to keep doing. <laughs> so that's a major you, accident. <laughs> yes, and and we know major accidents do happen, so, and we're going to talk about that for just a moment. The second purpose of what I'm trying to do right now is to be able to, after the accident, main at some point, maybe not in that moment, but down the line. You want to be able to maintain function of an organ or a limb. You want to maintain good range of motion, and you want to maintain good strength. So this means that in the moment that one injures themselves or takes a fall or catches a, a hand in a door or cuts themselves, in that one moment, the moves that you make next could eventually affect your entire future of healing and recovery. And I think that's a key point for people to know. So when you do get hurt, it's really a good idea to understand that this moment is vital. Now, the first assumption is that you're not hurt critically with a life or a limb or sight-threatening injury. Otherwise, call 911. That's what they're, that's what they're there for. So that means if you're actually having difficulty breathing or you're having chest pain or you see severe bleeding or there's an altered level of consciousness, 911 is the key. But we're, we're moving more toward a simpler type of an accident. Uh, like I said, a fall, a twisted ankle, an injured extremity or a joint uh, or some kind of a, a laceration, a cut or an abrasion or something that. So that's where we're focusing on today. So the first thing to do is to make sure you're alive. Now, that sounds kind of weird but, uh, and obvious, but just take a moment to make sure that you are okay. The second thing to do is to get out of harm's way. In other words, if you tripped in the middle of a street or an intersection, uh, if you can, get out of harm's way. If you fell on a railroad track, you want to get out of harm's way. Uh, if you're running in Spain for the uh, running of the bulls and you twist your ankle, <laughs> you want to get out of the way. Climb! <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, but other than that, if you're not in harm's way and you are alive, my suggestion is initially don't move. Do not move. And as I said before, because the next move you make could mean the difference between uh, a good or a bad outcome. So initially, don't move and begin to breathe and try and relax. Very important. And the reason that this is so important, and this is why we talk about the metaphor square breath and practicing all these things, is so that when you do have that moment, uh, you try your best to breathe and relax if you can. Sometimes it can happen. Uh, then, what we do in the emergency department when somebody comes in uh, after an accident is we do a quick initial assessment. Sometimes we call it our primary survey. And this is to determine what area or areas are actually hurt or deformed or bleeding. So you want to do a quick survey of everything that you can see or, or feel if you can move. And basically, you don't want to do much about it. You just want to define all of the areas. Uh, something may be obvious. You may see a deformity on a finger. You know, if you fell and the finger is dislocated or broken. But don't stop at that point. Just uh, acknowledge it and keep moving on. One of the things that, that was prevalent in the emergency department, especially when uh, somebody would come in, 
with multi-level uh, accident, with multiple body parts injured, is they have such severe pain in one area that it actually can mask other injuries. So it's very important in your primary survey, your initial examination of yourself, is don't stop when you find something with pain. Mark it in your mind and say, okay, my left wrist hurts. Uh, keep going. And you want to make sure there is or something else or if there's not something else. Now, if in your survey you do see something that's deformed or actively bleeding, or you see a body part that is normally inside and now it's on the outside and it's one that you've <laughs> never seen before. <laughs> Hopefully. If it used to live on the inside. Hopefully you've to... never seen it before. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's another time to call 911 or go directly to a hospital if you can. Otherwise, if after your initial assessment, uh, you see that there's no bleeding, you might have a pain here and maybe a little bit of a deformity here, but it doesn't look too bad. <clears throat> the next thing to do, and this is strange, but it's called think about the mechanism of injury. It's very important to know that because that gives you clues as to the extent of a problem, the power of a problem, uh, and also when you are going to talk with your doctor about it, that helps them to decide that there might be some other things going on. So in other words, if you catch your fingernail in a drawer as you're closing it, you pretty much know that's the mechanism of injury, that's all the problem is. But if you... Uh, if somebody came into the, again, the emergency department where they were going 70 miles an hour, they were hit and they went thrown out of the car through the windshield, uh, 60 to 80 feet, that mechanism of injury says to the doctor, there's a lot of forces and energies here that can cause lots of problems. So it makes you want to look for more things and go more deeply into something. The, uh, the obvious idea would be, um, say a stab wound, somebody stabs you with a knife, but they only stab you, uh, but it's a one-year-old accidentally stabbing you or a three-year-old with not much strength, that mechanism of injury says that the knife might not have gone in very far, so we don't have to worry that it penetrated uh, the intestines or a lung or a different part of the body. So the mechanism of injury is very important to think about and just put it in the back of your mind. After your initial assessment and your mechanism of injury, then it's time to evaluate the extent of each injury. So going back to if there's only one area or multiple areas, you take your time and go through each area. And when you're measuring the extent of an injury, first question, obviously, and the one that drives us toward everything is basically pain. Try and give a a description to the pain for yourself or to someone else who's talking to you? Is it sharp? Is it dull? Is it burning? Uh, so figure out your own pain uh, descriptions and, and give that even to yourself. Then try and put it on a pain scale. How much is this hurting me right now on a scale? And usually you go zero to 10, zero being no pain, 10 being the worst pain you could ever imagine. Um, and the reason that you do this is partly for the primary injury, but then we're going to talk about for the primary assessment, but we're going to talk later about a secondary assessment. But the first part is to determine uh, how bad it really appears to be. And then you measure it over time and if it's getting worse or better. So for example, if you start with a pain, uh, your dislocated finger, and you say it's uh, 8 out of 10, or it's not dislocated, but it's really hurting and you can't see anything wrong, but five minutes later, it's only a two out of 10, then you know that it's not something really bad and it gives you an idea that you're okay and you can uh, relax about it and make decisions based on that. On the other hand, if it started out as a two and now it's an eight, you know that this is something you have to deal with in a different way. And it gives you that opportunity to evaluate it over time. So try and figure out, after uh, labeling the pain, uh, how bad is it? 
once you label label the pain and you've given it a scale, the next thing is to uh, determine whether or not within that process you need professional help. If it gets worse or it's really bad, you need professional help. If it's not, then you can probably decide you're going to stay home and take care of it or so. Following this, after the pain, you want to see what makes the pain worse. So you look at a body part, and if looking at it makes it hurt more, then you probably need to go to the doctor. If looking at it doesn't make it hurt more, then the next thing to do is touch it with another part of your body. So if you have a finger that's hurt or a knee or an ankle, don't, uh, don't move that ankle yet. Try and touch it with your hand and feel it and feel all around that ankle. And this brings up a very important point for people. I think it's important that everyone becomes less squeamish about your own body. You don't want to be saying, ooh, blood. You need to understand that's part of your body, that's part of your life, and you want to keep that blood in there so it's good to learn about it. I suggest and recommend that everyone go out and buy some kind of an anatomy book, and this shows my age, or a DVD or an app or a website or something like that, where you can learn a, a little bit about anatomy and also when and if you do get hurt and you have a joint that's hurt and you're figuring it out, you can go to this anatomy uh, book or app and try and establish what really hurts and is it a bone, is it a tendon, is it a muscle, is it a ligament? And over time, the more that you learn this, and if you're preparatory and you start trying to learn these things before you get hurt, you'll do a lot better in life. So, you, <laughs> so you're trying to determine what makes the pain worse. Uh, do I need to take a moment here? <laughs> okay. Are you evaluating yourself right now? <laughs> that was cute i like that <laughs> <laughs> what makes the pain worse so the first part you want to uh, see about movement and when you're looking at movement i would say first do it passively so if you have a finger that is hurting or an ankle that's hurting try and not move it by trying to move the finger but try to move it with another finger so that means you're not actually tightening up your own muscles or your ligaments and tendons. You're allowing them to rest as carefully as possible. And try and just palpate or touch around the area that might be hurting and see if you get a sense feeling something out of place or feeling something moving that shouldn't be moving. If you hear sounds that you've never heard before, like the sound of a bone crunching, um, then don't go to the next phase of trying to move it actively, which means using the body's own muscles to move it. If in your movement passively you find that you're able to move it through the range of motion, and you should know the range of motion of each of your joints. You know, you could look at a shoulder joint, which has a different range of motion than a finger joint. So you should passively test the range of motion, and if that range of motion hurts, Stop moving it and don't go past that. If that range of motion doesn't hurt and you have pretty good range of motion, which you seem to uh, believe is the same you had before the accident, then you go to active range of motion. And that's where you actually move the body part, body part on its own. If it doesn't hurt with that type of movement, then you're okay. If it does with that type of movement, be aware of it, move on to the next place, or you may need to immobilize it so that it doesn't move anymore. Because again, remember I said from the beginning, in that one first moment, if you have uh, something that's being held on by just one little shred of a ligament, you want to keep that uh, intact. And if you have uh, a bone that's about to pinch a spinal nerve, which is going to paralyze you for the rest of your life. Um, it's best not to do those movements until you define that you can move. Mm -hmm. After you figure out what makes the pain worse, then try and figure out what makes the pain go away. So if you find that uh, a joint is uncomfortable in this position, but not in that position, 
that's the position you should go for and try and keep it in that position. You should also look for any other sensations or lack of sensations, numbness or tingling, um, loss of strength or sensation. Um, should I stop for a moment and let you ask me a question or should I just keep blasting through this whole thing? <laughs> no, I think, I think because we're, we're coming up to our hour already. So keep blasting and then at okay. the end of all this, so we, we can always come back. <laughs> okay. I'm going to keep blasting then. So we talked about what makes the pain go away and sensations or lack of sensation. Then certainly look at the integrity of the skin. Has it been compromised? Is there a cut, a laceration, a puncture, an abrasion, a burn, a bite, or a sting? Any of these things. And take care of them appropriately. Obviously, a laceration and bleeding you have to take care of differently. So you do this whole thing in each of the areas and you've identified in the primary survey and then I say, after you've done all that and you've gone through all this, do a secondary survey. Go through everything again. See if anything that was hurting at the beginning is now better so you don't have to focus on it. And if in your original survey there's now something hurting that you didn't find, then uh, mark that and go through the whole process of the pain and everything else, uh, evaluation with the movements, etc., in your secondary survey. So a primary survey and a secondary survey. If in your evaluation, uh, then is the time, if you're on the ground, that's the time to get up once you've assumed you can get up. If, and then try and determine whether you can get up with help or without. Get to a more comfortable position and start doing first aid, cleaning wounds, stabilizing joints, etc. <clears throat> and then you make the next determination, which is something that can be, is this something that can be watched? Is it something that needs to be discussed with your family doctor or you need to actually go to an emergency department once you've done that secondary uh, survey? And uh, I would say make sure that if you do have an injury where there's laceration or the skin has been compromised, certainly consider uh, to make sure your tetanus immunization is up to date, especially for dirty wounds. And the last few things I'll say uh, I always use ice first for swelling, and I use it for about 10 minutes at a time. can do it a number of times every few hours. Don't put it directly on the skin. If you have a back, a pelvis, or a lower extremity injury and involved, and it's painful to bear weight and walk, then uh, if you don't want to be seen by a doctor and get it truly evaluated, then you might want to use something to help with weight bearing, and that would be crutches or a cane. And certainly, if you use crutches, make sure you use them appropriately with the right size and measurements so they're not up in your axilla or armpit. And if you use the cane, the standard approach is to use the cane in the opposite hand of whatever extremity you injured. So if you injured a left uh, hip or left knee or left ankle, use the cane in your right hand. Discuss that with your physical therapist if you need to. Uh, you don't want to cause problems that by avoiding pain, you throw your whole body out of alignment, and this could be uh, a worse problem over time. The other thing that I talk about is I do not recommend anti-inflammatory medication at first for anyone. Um, the inflammatory process is a normal physiological part of healing. And it's a necessary part that allows the body to begin to heal. If you prevent the body from doing its normal things, then you pre may prevent the whole healing process. And usually in an accident, acute accident within moments, uh, there's no inflammation at the site. So there's no need to um, use an anti-inflammatory. So remember, uh, basically, after you do your surveys, the decisions that you make uh, at that time may have long-term consequences. So the final thing I would say is after you've done your evaluations and you've done all the things you want to do and you're trying to decide, do I go to the doctor? Do I stay home and watch it? Do I go to a hospital? Uh, consider for a moment the possibility of the long-term effects. And that may help you in your 
process of making the decision. So with that, I think uh, I'm going to close the doctor's bag unless you have a question <laughs> or two. That was a, a, a whooping wealth of information. I think we need to show just on that. <laughs> it's pretty important. And I think, you know, I a lot of times when I'm preparing for a show, I will talk to people about I talk to people that I know that are actually in healthcare, and I talk to them, and I say, so what will you do during a, uh, an acute injury? And most of the time, they'll say something like, well, that's your job. I just want to deal with it after uh, you know, a longer period of time. So mm -hmm. I want to deal with it after the doctor dealt with it, and uh, I'm a physical therapist, so I'm going to help you heal. The important part of an injury is to think immediately about healing. Mm -hmm. And to, re, as I said, to regain strength, range of motion, sensations, everything else. So the things that one does in that very first moment, and that's why I think this was important, um, can determine those factors. Mm -hmm. Ah, okay. Close that doctor's bag. <laughs> Closing the bag. Yes, I mean, moments of that were quite graphic, of course, as you visualize it in your mind, and, and it's very powerful. And I, and I think it is really important, Glenn, because I, I know people who have fallen and waited for days before actually going to see a doctor, and next thing you know, it's actually more severe than they know it is, than they believed it was. Um, and of course, you know, as you say, the anti-inflammatories... <laughs> Oh, let's just pop a few of those, you know, just put a right. few, you know, of those down and I feel better. <laughs> right. So I don't need to go see the doctor. Exactly. Well, you know. <laughs> so I think you gave some very, very good advice. And and uh, I do believe that that should be a show on its own. Yeah. The yeah, simple first aid and then the more critical first aid. <laughs> yeah. uh, this is self-evaluation. We, we haven't even gotten to first aid yet. Almost. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> this is just part of it. Uh, I think, you know, some of the take-home messages, we did talk about the measles and things like that, but in the take-home messages for the second part is learn to know, understand, and respect your body. Mm -hmm. And that's important. So if you know how it normally functions, that's your goal for if you get into an accident, you want to get it back to that point. And all of the decision-making uh, that comes after that very first moment can affect everything. Mm -hmm. You know, and you see people all the time. You see a person who has a deformed finger or a deformed elbow or, or they walk with a limp or something is wrong. And it's because they got into an accident or injury and uh, handled it not necessarily appropriately at first. Mm -hmm. Certainly things do happen. Bad accidents, you know, may never get back to normal, but it's, uh, it's always our hope. Like I said, we want to remain alive and we want to remain functional. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Dr. Glenn Woolman for this wonderful moment in the, our magical tour. <laughs> <laughs> yes, definitely. Now, but I want to know, of course, if you have a tip. Uh, you know, I think my, my tip for today uh, goes on to part two, and that is, and I said it already in the, uh, as we were talking, get an anatomy book, get an anatomy app, get an anatomy something, and start learning it on your own, teaching everyone in your family, teaching your children. The more that you learn anatomy um, to the degree that you need to, the better off you will be. So that's my health tip. And you never know. I think the thing that happened to me is I started appreciating anatomy when I was very young, and that made me go into medicine because I loved the body so much and what it did and what it was, what it was about. So there's always a possibility that aside from just learning about the bones and joints and internal organs in your body, you, if you're showing it to your kids, you may stimulate one of your children to go into medicine or some mm. form of healing. That's my health tip. Oh, I agree with all of that. <laughs> okay, what health tip have you not agreed with yet? None. Okay. <laughs>
<laughs> so far, so far. So far, yeah. There, <laughs> so there far. could be one coming. There could be one. You never yeah, know. <laughs> that's right. I may not agree with somebody's uh, upcoming health tip. Absolutely. But not yet. Not yet. Hmm. I, think, not I, yet. I think it's been really, really uh, wonderful and sometimes a surprise. And, you know, there's, uh, that, that's why the end of the year or beginning of the year uh, com uh, compilation of all the health tips are so wonderful to have. Yeah, Segovia does a great job on that. It's so much fun to listen to all of them. It, it brings back the memories of all the other things that people talked about, but then right. giving the insights, you know, part of what we talk about are uh, the heart and soul of the healers mm -hmm. uh, on this show. And I think one of the things that the health tip usually surprises me about or comes out about is it's more from their heart and soul. It's not necessarily from what their specialty is or what they do. It's a heart and soul process, and I really love that. As I, as the Yoga Hub team. <laughs> yes, definitely. So I'd like to thank uh, myself as our special guest. I'd like to thank Christina for her willingness to uh, be on the show today from another part of the world, the uh, northern part of North America. <laughs> And for Segovia and everyone else, and I want to thank all of my healers and teachers for helping me on my journey. And until next week, when we travel through another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy, I want to thank you, Christina and Segovia and all of Yoga Hub and all of our listeners and viewers. And I wish you all optimal health. <laughs> thank you, Dr. Woolman, for another great moment in that doctor's bag. And of course, Segovia Smith and the Yoga Hub team for being able to tap me in to the show. And of course, to each and every one of you for joining us in this new platform of education and information. We're always grateful for your continuous support, and we look forward to hearing your feedback on how we can serve you better. You can connect with Dr. Glenn Woolman by, through his website at glennwoolman.com glennwoolman.com and be sure to learn about his metaphor square breath exactly what he was talking about during the show to keep yourself calm and uh, to help you through those times that you know a wave might have hit <laughs> and of course we uh, would love to hear your feedback uh, comments suggestions um, you can either scroll down on your screen and type it into the comment box or if you are listening to this as a podcast please give us a call at 818 let's talk 818 let's talk and be sure to leave your contact information and until next time maybe i'll be back in the u.s as long as there's no measles up here <laughs> that's going to ward us from coming back um we will speak to you again and uh, look forward to having you on our show namaste This live event coverage is brought to you by YogaHub.com. Make YogaHub your new media channel for health and wellness. With original programming and shows ranging from yoga and meditation to parenting and nutrition, we have hundreds of videos with experts, authors, and medical professionals. Visit us online at YogaHub.com or search for YHTV on iTunes and subscribe today.